Jonah 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Get forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger, so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be in the Lord's house this morning. It's good to have the word here open before us. You know, I was reminded this past week of, of the sovereignty of God. And, and, you know, a read through the book of Jonah will present God's sovereignty, I believe, in a very brilliant light. He's the king. He's the ruler over all created things we see in this book. He sees all things. He knows all things. He's all-powerful. All things in heaven and on earth are subject to this sovereign king. And yet when it comes to authority, even Christians today are operating apart from the foundational truth that God is sovereign king. That he is Lord over all. I was thinking about this and was reminded of one of my favorite signers of the Constitution. A Rhode Island man, William Ellery, and the story of William Ellery is one that I carry with me quite often. The story is told that Mr. Ellery, when signing, having conversation even, with people. He would end his conversation, end his letters oftentimes with the phrase, The Lord reigneth. Just a reminder that you know what? No matter what we're going through, no matter what's going on, the Lord's got things under control. The Lord reigneth. And you know, the scripture gives us those very reminders as well. In Psalm 11, verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's. In all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. You see, the Lord reigns over each one of your households. He reigns over the church, having bought the church with the blood of His Son, Jesus. Acts chapter 20 tells us that. Most Christians would adhere to the Lord's sovereignty and reign over these two particular entities, the home and the church. The one that oftentimes gets a bit blurry is the institution of government. Why is there an assumption that government is exempt from being under the umbrella of God's reign? Why is it that men have no desire to bring God into the picture when speaking of government? Is there a responsibility on our end as 
Christians to uphold the authority of God, even in the government sector? I hope that we would say absolutely yes. Ought not God's authority be upheld as the norm for how government should operate? God's authority oversees the family, and his authority is the foundation for the church. But where is God's authority when the conversation turns to government? Is God not invited to the discussion? Think about the ramifications of that. Is God not needed in government offices today as decisions are being made on behalf of a whole nation of people? Think about that. Of just excluding God from being in government. When what's at stake, these decisions that are being made are impacting a nation. You think God needs to be involved in that? Why would God and his word of authority apply to the home and church only? Romans 13 reminds us to let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So if it is true what the scripture says, there is no authority except from God, then even the government is responsible to uphold the authority of God, for it's God who has appointed them to such an office. I bring this up because I believe it is possible that Christians today, even Christians today, have dismissed the possibility of government operating as a nation under God. There are many today who have no desire to be under God. We try to slash that out of everything. One nation under God. We simply want to be one nation. And I say, great, one nation. Accountable to whom? Under whose direction? You see, in some ways, the nation has operated like those in the book of Judges. You might recall this verse in Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, I want you to hold this idea, hold these things in mind as you read through the text today in Jonah. Because government officials, the king of Nineveh himself, gets caught up In hearing the word of the Lord. I want you to notice the impact of the word of the Lord. Not only upon the people of Nineveh, but upon the leadership of the nation. Let's begin where we left off last week. Let's look at the excerpt. Remember we we spoke of the excerpt in verse 4 last week. Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the question comes, what's the impact of such a proclamation? What's the impact? The text gives us the answer in verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, And put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. The first thing I believe I'd like for us to see this morning in the text is the word of the Lord turns the people of Nineveh. The word of the Lord turns the people of Nineveh. We spoke last week that they believed God. They didn't believe Jonah. Okay? They weren't placing their trust in man. No doubt Jonah was the instrument God used to deliver his message. But the text says that the people of Nineveh believed God. So the word of the Lord turns the people of Nineveh. The people of Nineveh believed God after hearing the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord caught the attention of Nineveh. They turn not as a result of Jonah's fine and persuasive speech, but due to the word 
of the Lord. They believed God by way of hearing the word of the Lord. You see, Jonah was a willing vessel this time to get God's message out. The herald had come into Nineveh announcing a message from the king of kings. You know, when I got to thinking about opportunities that you and me have to proclaim this same message. Do you recognize that this word of the Lord has power to turn people to God? Do you speak the word of the Lord expecting his word to transform other people? You know, even preaching the word. You know, I pray that, I pray that this word would bear fruit in the lives of each one of you occupying a chair. And as I stand to, to, to speak the king's words, I do so trusting that his word's not going to return to him void, but it's going to accomplish his very purpose. And his very purpose may not necessarily be just saving lost souls. No doubt that's part of it. His purpose this morning could very well be to awaken some of you who are in Christ to the reality of your situation. His purpose this morning might be to stir you up in some way to do the very things he's been trying to get you to do. But you see, it's his word accomplishing his purpose. For just a moment, look at the word that's before you. Most of you have a cover. Some of you have a nice Bible cover to put your Bible in and protect and take care of. But just for a moment, if you look through your word, I want you to think about this this God-breathed word that you've been given. The words within the pages have the power to save. You see, this is no ordinary book, is it? These words, church, can turn men away from their old way of living and show them a whole new way of living. And the question really is an important one for us to ask of ourselves. Do, do, you, do you see these words as the wonderful words of life? You remember the song? Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life. Sweetly echo the gospel call, wonderful words of life. I like this phrase. Offer pardon and peace to all, wonderful words of life. Jesus only, Savior, sanctify forever. Do we view this word in that light? You see, the people of Nineveh, church, they believed God as a result of the word of the Lord proclaimed by Jonah and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit wrought in their hearts. Notice what the text says about the accompanying actions. Upon believing God. They proclaimed a fast. And put on sackcloth. One writer. Speaking to the. Fasting and the sackcloth. And later we see the king. Sitting in ashes. Speaking to this very thing. Says the chief feature in these outward indications of humiliation is this. They are employed as expressive confessions of guilt. Not of mourning, not merely a sense of danger. They are all designed to own that the dreaded judgment is righteous, that it is deserved, that we are worthy in justice of nothing else at the hands of the Lord. This is what is implied in these tokens and badges of abasement, this sackcloth and sitting in ashes. There are acknowledgments that all excellence or beauty have been lost by us, that we have stripped ourselves. 
of everything that could recommend us to God. That we are not only in a pitiable condition, but criminal, and that we have reduced ourselves to it, and that we admit and own that we are. See, I want you to notice from the text, too, what it says there in verse 5. Notice the impact of this word of the Lord on all the people of Nineveh. The text says, from the greatest to the least of them. From the greatest to the least of them. So the scope of people reached through the word of the Lord, it's blind to the status of men, isn't it? And this is a beautiful thing. The word of the Lord penetrates the heart of the young man, the middle-aged man, the elderly man, The word of the Lord pierces the heart of that little girl, the young lady, the mother, the grandmother. Color, race, ethnicity, whether you're tall, short, skinny, not quite as skinny. Poor, rich, somewhere in between, according to the standards of the world. It doesn't matter. The word of the Lord is for everyone. The word of the Lord knows none of those boundaries. Amen? Isn't that a great thing? See, in a world we live in today that loves to draw walls and distinctions and little circles... The word of the Lord, church, does not do that. No one is exempt from the word of the Lord. So, we then ought to let the word go forth with boldness. It's for everyone. Don't limit the word of the Lord to only those you think might be inclined to listen. To my shame, I I know I've done that. Trust God with His words to bring about His intended results. Okay, Jonah 3, verse 6. Then the word, word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. So we see here in verse 5, the word of the Lord turns the people of Nineveh. Here in verse 6, the word of the Lord awakens an earthly king. The word of the Lord awakens an earthly king. You know, I remember, still remember, as a child, waking up on... Christmas morning, and on this one particular Christmas morning, I remember my brother, who is two and a half years older, coming in to my bedside, awaking me, telling me, it's Christmas morning. He was excited about the words that he had to share. He was excited to let me know it was Christmas morning. In our house, we have many what I just didn't call informants. We have many. Six of them, to be exact. Little ones who like to share good news. Anybody have in your home informants who like to share good news? Yeah, yeah, we, we do. And you know, anytime in our house, anytime dad and mom get together to talk, one of them sees that and immediately informs the others that dad and mom talking about something. And the implication there is that dad and mom's conversation means we're going somewhere or we're making family plans. 
And you're laughing because it happens in your own household, right? That, that's that's how, how it works. You know, the, the text here in Jonah says that the word of the Lord came to the king of Nineveh. I find it interesting that at the end of verse 5, it gives us the scope, the reach of this word from the greatest to the least. And right next verse gives us, from the worldly standard, who it is is the greatest. That would be the king. So now we get some instruction here, some insight into this word of the Lord and what it is doing to the king. How did it arrive to his ears, this word of the Lord? The text doesn't tell us, but I wonder if there was a Ninevite informant who couldn't wait to get the news to the king. I mean, think about some of the workers in the king's palace who had already heard the news, perhaps, jockeying for position as they raced to tell their king this news. Perhaps it was Jonah who brought the word directly to the king. Regardless of who brought it, we can be certain, according to the text, that the word of the Lord came to the king. It arrived right on time. And the text describes the actions of the king, minus the statement that we get in verse 5. We don't see in verse 6 the statement that the king believed, like we see in verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. What did the king of Nineveh do upon hearing the word of the Lord, though? Let's look at that. First thing, he arose from his throne. He arose from his throne, okay? The king had been sitting on his throne. Upon hearing the word of the Lord, the text says he arose from his throne. And you know, I'm drawn right here to consider a throne of a different kind. This throne of the heart. And asking the question, who is on the throne of your heart? You see, the king for so long had been sitting on his throne, literally. But I believe he was, spiritually speaking, sitting upon the throne of his own heart. God was not even in the picture the historical context of Nineveh speaks volumes. God had not been welcomed in this place. So the king arose from his throne. How about you? Have you been trying to reign and rule on the throne of your own heart? And are you perhaps usurping God's rightful authority in your life? And do you believe for, for a moment, do you believe that you can rule your own heart better than the Lord? I think some instruction from Scripture may be helpful here about our heart. And you go all the way back to Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2. You see, the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and he breathed life into that man and the man became a living being. So here's the point. God made you. And if he's the one that made you, he knows all about you. He even knows that heart of yours. So much better than we know it ourselves because we could look elsewhere in the scripture Right? Proverbs 4.23 says, to keep or guard your heart with all diligence. For out of it spring the issues of life. In other words, you and I have responsibility before the Lord to guard and to keep our heart with all diligence. When you're doing something with all diligence, we talk about diligence quite a lot in our home. Do things with diligence. Church, guarding your heart, keeping your heart, is to be done with all diligence. There's a responsibility on our end to guard our hearts. Jeremiah 17 9 and 10 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. All the more reason to guard it with all diligence 
but all the more reason to get off your own throne and allow someone who knows your heart to be able to rule and reign. Because later in that same text, Jeremiah 17, it says, Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Psalm 19, 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Do you desire to please God with your heart? Or what about the end of Psalm 139, 23 and 24? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Here's a question. Are you willing to allow God to do a thorough search, scan? We're going to be talking about some technology later this afternoon. Do a full scan of your heart, mind, all the above. Are you willing to do that? Or are there some compartments in your life, some of those interior things that you would just rather God not have access to, that you've been pushing him away for quite some time because you know there's something there that's being hidden right now and you'd rather not expose that. So he arose from his throne. What else did he do? Text says he laid aside his robe. The robe was worn by the king. It identified him as king. The royal garment marked him as the king of Nineveh. And on this day, when the word of the Lord arrived and came to the king, he laid aside his robe. He took it off. In this moment, it was deemed unnecessary. See, that robe was a sign to the people that he was a king. The robe held significance and meaning. And now the robe is laid aside. I've been reminded here of late with some birthdays in our own household of how quickly little ones lay aside a present they've just opened. When one gets a present and they open it, and Lord willing, Render thanks to the one who gave them the gift. Then it gets laid aside because there's, there's another gift. There's another one sitting right there. And it's quite a joy and delight, is it not, as a young person? <laughs> to see some wrapped gifts waiting to be ripped open. The priority seems to be in that next gift. And because of that, he lays the open gift aside for a moment. And I think about the king of Nineveh laying aside his robe. And maybe, just maybe for the first time in his life, he sees another gift waiting for him. Never before has he seen this gift. His robe, you see, has been to him his sole identity as king. But now the word of the Lord has come to him. According to the text, he seems quick to lay aside his robe for something better. In this case, he lays the robe aside for someone better. Someone much greater. And didn't Jesus do the very same thing, church? Didn't he lay aside his own purposes that the purposes of his father might be carried out in his life? Didn't he lay aside? Didn't he lay down his very life for us? And in doing so, show us what love is. 1 John three sixteen. The king of Nineveh arose from his throne, laid aside his robe. Then according to the text, he covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. He did what the people of Nineveh had already done in verse 5. Right? Verse 5 tells us that's what they did. Now it tells us the king did this. And it adds the fact that he sat in ashes. You see, sitting in ashes is the, the counterpart to getting off his throne and laying aside his robe. The throne and the robe, they served as an identity. And they reminded him of his power as king of Nineveh. And upon hearing the word of the Lord, this same king sits in ashes. 
And what a potent reminder it is of man's origin. Dust. And to dust we shall return. You know, a great picture of his true condition before the Lord. There's more from the king, though. Look, look at verse 7. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. So we've seen that the word of the Lord turns the people of Nineveh. We see the word of the Lord and what it did to the king and awakened the king. And here in 7, 8, and 9, we see the word of the Lord rallies a nation through an earthly king. The word of the Lord didn't just impact individuals in Nineveh. Once the word reached the king of Nineveh, something bigger was about to happen. Something nationwide is brewing. Notice that the text gives additional detail regarding the impact of the word of the Lord on the king. And rightly so. For the king is in a position of leadership and influence. The word of the Lord has no doubt affected the king. We saw that in verse 6. Prompting him to get off his throne, to take off his robe, to put on sackcloth and sit down in ashes. And the text paints the picture that even the king of Nineveh was pierced to the heart upon hearing the word of the Lord. Flowing out of that, the king decides to make a decision. As king, he can make decisions which impact the lives of those under him. Notice the decision he makes in the text. It's a decision, I pray, might yet happen in these United States of America. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. You see, the king is the active agent for both the proclamation and the publication. And whether certain messengers from the king's court went out to proclaim this message or, or whether the message was published, made known to the public through some other form of communication, the point is clear. The word of the Lord has impacted the king himself. You see, when the message of the word of the Lord impacts you, it's going to cause you to do something in response to it. And from what I read in the text, it did something to the king. This message did something to the king, stirred the king. king's influence impacted those closest to him, his nobles. And together they put their name to the decree proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh. What did the decree say? What was it calling the people of Nineveh to do? Look at the text. To the text. Keep looking at the text. Let neither man nor beast... Herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. All right, so what did it say? Well, first of all, here in verse 7, essentially, don't do this. <laughs> Here's what you're not to do, right? Nineveh, I do not permit you or any beast of your field to eat anything or drink anything at this time. Refrain from eating and drinking, both man and beast. And, and, and the question probably comes, why the beasts? Why you got to get them involved in this? That's odd. That's strange. Come on. What's that all about? What did these beasts do to deserve such treatment? You know, there, there's a group today, a group of peoples today that wouldn't like this. Right? You see, when sin is being dealt with, it oftentimes affects others, Right? And in this moment, the decree was for the people of Nineveh to stop everything, 
Taking care of their animals would have been a given, right? Would have been a normalcy. Those of you that have animals, you take care of them day after day after day. You, you feed them certain times of the day. You take care of them. It's a normal part of what you do. And no doubt it was a normal part for the people of Nineveh. But as of the decree, life was going to change for the people of Nineveh. The word of the Lord was bringing a new day. Life was going to be lived out differently now. Don't do this. But look at verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So the proclamation begins by exhorting them not to do something. And now we get here, do this. So don't do this. Do this. Here's what you're supposed to do here. What are you going to do? All right, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. So again, the decree includes the animals. Cover them as well with sackcloth. Let's get everyone covered. Situation is a grave one and calls for complete obedience here. Everybody get on the same page here. This is a proclamation from the king to the nation. What else are they to do? Cry mightily to God. The same word, cry, it's used back in Jonah chapter 1, verse 14, describing what the mariners did. You remember that? Back when the mariners were, were on board the ship there. And, and Jonah told them what they needed to do. Just pick me up and throw me overboard. I realize this tempest is because of me. And, and what is their first action? Rowing. They tried to row them back to land. Right? What was the second action? Prayer. Verse 14. They cried out to Jonah's God. See, previously to that, they'd been crying out to their own individual gods. And now they're crying out to the God of Jonah. Well, we see right here, from the king of Nineveh, whose heart no doubt had been impacted some way, some shape, some form, from the word of the Lord that he heard, and the instruction to his people, the instruction to the nation, is to cry mightily to God. I just stopped there for a moment. And I, and I really thought about that. A king making it known to the nation. Proclaiming this message and publishing throughout the country to cry mightily to God. The people of Nineveh were hearing perhaps for the first time a king rallying a nation to cry out, to, not to himself, not look at me, not bow down to me. Cry out to God. Cry out to God. And the people of Nineveh are starting to recognize that their king is a man who now sees himself under authority. What else? Turn from your evil and violent ways. This was, this was rich here. Don't just put on sackcloth. Don't simply cry out to God, as wonderful as those things are. The king, it's as though he's saying, I'm calling you to change the way you're currently living. This word of the Lord, it demands a different way of walking, Nineveh. Stop with all the lying. Stop with all the cheating. Stop murdering people. Stop it. The word of the Lord has come to my ears. And the word of the Lord has made it clear. The behavior of your nation, O king. This nation over which I've placed you as head. This nation over which I am truly reigning and ruling. It's not acceptable the way this nation is living. And the king, in response, through this proclamation, through the call to turn from your evil ways and your violent ways, we're going to walk a different way now, Nineveh. There's some new marching orders that I've received from the king of kings. This is the way to go. Has the word of the Lord, church, 
Has it made a difference in your life? Maybe you've fasted. Perhaps you've cried mightily to the Lord in prayer. And I don't discount either one of those actions. Are you willing, though, to take the step decreed by the king of Nineveh? Are you willing to change your behavior and walk in obedience to the commands of the king? Are you going to walk a different way now in light of hearing the word of the Lord? Fathers, God has placed you as the king in your home. And perhaps some of you have set the table for change to occur. Maybe you have proclaimed a fast of sorts in your own home. Maybe you have had the family collectively cry out to God in prayer. My question, though, is one of application, one of putting feet to your faith. Is anything going to change in the light of the word of the Lord? Are you calling each one in your own home to change his or her ways? Are you speaking directly to the sins that exist within your own household? And you know, Nahum, the prophet Nahum, gives us a picture of the specific sins of Nineveh. What specific sins need to be accounted for in your home? You see, the king addressed the known sins of his people, and he called them to stop acting this way. Fathers, identify the sins in your own household, fathers, including your own. And exhort each one to turn from their sins that you might walk together in the commandments of the Lord. We learn a lot from these words of a Ninevite king. A Ninevite king who was pierced, it seems, to some degree, some level, with what he heard, this word of the Lord. Look at verse 9. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? So here's what not to do. Here's what you need to do. Verse 9. Here's why you need to do it. You see there's this fear of the Lord aspect that's brought out here. The aspect that there's this fierce anger of God. in light of the pending judgment that we looked at back in chapter 3, verse 4. Right? Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. God's angry. Here's why we need to do these things, the king says. This is part of the proclamation in verse 9. But, but I also see in this hope. Who can tell if God will turn and relent? Turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Perhaps the Lord will relent. Which means we will not perish. And going back to Jonah as a sign to the Ninevites. You know, if God can spare a man from the belly of the fish and give him a second chance... Is it possible that we might be the recipients of some of that same mercy? See, Jonah represented the hope that things could be different, perhaps, for the king and for the nation. One writer said, where did this heathen king get the idea that God might have compassion if he repented of his sin? He says, why from Jonah, of course. 
Despite himself, Jonah embodied the message that God was compassionate. He was in himself a sign of God's grace. He ran from the will of God and yet was brought out alive from the belly of the great fish. The king of Nineveh took courage every time he looked at Jonah. Perhaps there might be compassion from God for the sinners of Nineveh as well. You see, there's hope here. The word of the Lord was rallying a nation to cry out to God, to walk in his ways, all through the proclamation of a Ninevite king. Look at verse 10. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So the word of the Lord turns the people of Nineveh. The word of the Lord awakens an earthly king. The word of the Lord rallies a nation through this earthly king. And we see here that the word of the Lord accomplishes its purpose. The word of the Lord accomplishes its purpose. And Isaiah 55 tells us that very thing. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud and that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which it was sent. Two things here in the text in Jonah 3 verse 10 to take note of. First of all, God saw. What did he see? He saw their works. What do we know about their works? The text says they turned from their evil way. Secondly, we see God relented. Relented from what? From overthrowing Nineveh in his wrath. Going back to Jonah chapter 3 verse 4. That's what he said he was going to do through Jonah. So verse 10 Backs up what verse 9 speaks of. The people of Nineveh were decreed to do certain things. The proclamation charged the people to turn from their evil way and violent actions. Verse 10 says that God saw their works. Not simply their fast. Not simply their sackcloth they put on. Not simply sitting in ashes. But works rooted out of a changed Heart. Verse 10 says they turned from their evil way. In other words, God noticed something different about these Ninevites. They weren't cheating any, anybody anymore. They weren't going out killing people anymore. Their ways were different now. Their behaviors changed. And that's what God saw. You know, there's something to be said here about what Paul writes in the New Testament as a new creation in Christ. See, when God sees your works, he sees not only the exterior behavior, but interior heart that accompanies the actions. As a result of what God saw, the text says that God relented from bringing his wrath on them. And we're reminded in in Luke chapter 11, verse 32 where Jesus says that Nineveh repented, repented at the preaching of Jonah. Okay, so the message from Jonah, back in chapter 3, verse 4, is one of pending judgment. Now the text says that God relents from his previously stated judgment. So what's happening here? Is God changing his mind? Isn't he the unchangeable God? Isn't he the God who, according to Titus 1, verse 2, is a God who cannot lie? You know, for those of you who may be thinking that this seems like an odd text and and contradicting some different things in Scripture about who God is, I'd just like to to share a couple Scriptures briefly with you that I believe will be helpful. Um, Jeremiah, if you keep your finger in Jonah and turn to Jeremiah chapter 18, Scripture provides some helpful principles here for understanding this situation, I believe, in the text. In Jeremiah 18, I'd just like to read 7, 8, 9, and 10. The word of the Lord is speaking. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull up, and to destroy it. If that nation 
against whom I have spoken, turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. He's not done. In the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build up and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. See the principle here. And we can apply this, no doubt, to the situation that we're speaking of in the book of Jonah. This ought not take us by surprise. In fact, um, a New Testament scripture that I just shared with you in, in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but listen to this. But his long-suffering toward us, praise the Lord for that, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. One writer says, was there any changeableness in God indicated by this change in his procedure, speaking to what may be perceived as God changing here in the text of Jonah, chapter 3, verse 10? He says, no, this change in his procedure was needful to avert the charge of change in his character and the principles of his procedure. See, he gives us these principles. In fact, we see 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a promise that he gives. So God is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us. And in light of such a God, why wouldn't you willingly confess your sins and draw near to him? In light of who this God is. The word of the Lord turned the people of Nineveh. Church, the same word of the Lord still turns the heart of people today. My question for you is, do you believe that? Do you believe it? We saw in verse 6, the word of the Lord awakened the king of Nineveh. This same word still has the power to awaken a president yet today. Amen? Still has the power to do the same thing. Proverbs 21 verse 1, right, tells us that very thing. The heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord, right? He turns it wherever he wishes. Praise the Lord for that. We see in verses 7 through 9, the word of the Lord rallied a nation through the king of Nineveh. And the same word, church, is the rallying point for the nation today. The rallying point is centered on Jesus and the cross upon which he died. He was buried, was raised three days later according to the scriptures. And church, we need to understand and recognize and acknowledge firmly there is no other rallying point under heaven given to men under heaven, by which we must be saved. Jesus is the center rallying point. Amen? He's the center. Let's be clear. And then we see here in verse 10 that the word of the Lord accomplished its purposes. That the people of Nineveh turned from their evil ways. That the king of Nineveh led the nation to seek this God of whom Jonah had spoken. And the same word still accomplishes its purposes yet today. Does it not? Anyone in here testify to that? I hope so. Do you live as though this powerful, life-giving word of the Lord able to save, rebuke, correct, teach, instruct in righteousness. You see, he accomplishes his purposes through his word, in his timing, using his instruments. That's where we come into play. And you know, as we'll see in the text, he's not quite done with Jonah. We still have a chapter to go, don't we? 
He's not quite done with Jonah. And if you're here today and you're breathing in air, which I hope you are, hope many of you are, I don't think he's done with you either. I believe he's got something for you to do. I believe he's got a work for you to carry out. And you know, much of the text today, I was thinking about this, much of the text here in Jonah 3, at least these last few verses we covered today, is centered on the people of Nineveh. The text is speaking directly about the people of Nineveh, the king of Nineveh, and how the word of the Lord impacted them. And what a praise to the Lord for his mercy towards sinners. And we sang the song earlier, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. Let's be reminded, although we're talking about Nineveh, talking about people who were far from God, we see how they responded, how they were impacted by the word of the Lord. How are you being impacted by the word of the Lord? Those of you who are in Christ Jesus, is this just a ho-hum deal? Is this just, oh, this is just something. Wow, let's close the book and we're done. Or do we actually carry this word out? Is this word a delight to us? Is the God we serve a delight? And out of that delight in him comes a delight in his word. I was reminded of that. That the same word that captured the attention of the Ninevites. This is the word that captured me. It captured you. Perhaps at one time it captured you. And now for some reason or another... You've been captured by something else. And you've strayed. And you've gone down an alley. You've gone down a path that's taken you from this word that at one time captured your heart, captured your attention. I leave you with two questions to consider. What is your response to his gracious and loving word? And how then are you going to live in light of the word of the Lord given to you? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is a gift. It's a joy to be able to have your word. It's a delight. And I do pray, Lord, that each one here would remember how this word captured our attention. Oh, praise your name, Lord, that we read in the text that this word captured the heart of a king, a pagan king, a nation that was far from you. A nation that was on the verge of destruction. But a nation whose eyes were opened and ears were opened to hear the word of the Lord from your messenger Jonah. Father, I pray that we would see your wonderful works put on display right here in Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. How powerful you are, how mighty you are to change the course of a nation, to change the heart of a pagan king, to change the hearts of people who at one time were so far from you. Oh, it reminds me of what you say in your word about who we once were in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3. We who were dead have been made alive. Thank you for rescuing us, Lord. And may we remember these words and carry these words with us. May these words be encouragement to us for those that we know in our sphere of influence who seemingly are far away from you. May this word bring about hope within us to continue to persevere in prayer for these other people who are lost without you. May we read these words and understand that you are a God who transforms That you are a God whose word is living and active. Pierces and penetrates the hearts and judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Oh Lord, thank you for this word. 
May we be obedient to walk in the way of the word that you've given to us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his example. May we walk in that way. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.